0: and 365-day returns. Welcome
1: to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come in. Welcome. Welcome to the Nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to 2013 and... Welcome to Show Fifty-Three. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and yes it is. This is the first show of our second year, and all is as it should be. Shed your winter wear, such as that is, it having more or less given up being winter out there, but it's pleasantly cozy in here. We supply a semblance of winter indoor snuggling, A coolness of atmosphere, flickering lights, the scent of cinnamon, the smell of pine. Plenty of room to spread, and, if chilled, there are lap robes aplenty, and warming beverages galore. So fill your cups, fill your bowls, and as suggested, snuggle. Tonight, ah, tonight, we have... Episode 7 of Horror 101, in which Kevin Lucia will take us through the late 19th century. He'll explore some haunted places and some spooky tales. And after that, then, then, then we will have a grand guignol sort of tale for you. A disturbing little piece about hopes and... uh, You'll see. Patience, please. There are a few orders of business to clear up first. You have doubtless heard, Tales to Terrify has a book for sale. It's a large, generous book, 24 Tales. The book contains some of the best horror fiction written in the modern era by writers who are really, really good. That is, Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. And you can get it by clicking on the ad placard on our homepage at, oh, well, you know where it is, http colon slash slash tales to terrify, all one word, dot com slash. Or you can go to any of the home pages in the District of Wonders. Come on. You know you want to. Many have. Many more have not. Why be among those, hmm? Then there is this to consider. How to write science fiction with Spider Robinson. Stop by the mothership, the good ship, starship, sofa, and enroll today. Get in before the door closes. It's a one-day-only experience. That day being Saturday, January 26, beginning at 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Come on, Nighthawks. That will be Spider Robinson on the other side of your headset, whispering, well, growling. You know what Spider does. He'll be speaking directly to your inner head about his life in science fiction. So go, go on, go on over to the starship sofa and enroll. You know you want to. Okay. Are you settled in? Are you comfy? is the flicker, gloom, and shadow set just right for you. Okay? Kevin Lucia is back from his Christmas break, and tonight he begins with, well, you'll hear. Here's Kevin with Horror 101.
2: again that creep of horror came over me but this time it was more cold and stubborn i felt as if some strange and ghastly exultation were rising up from the chinks of that rugged floor and filling the atmosphere with a venomous influence hostile to human life the door now very slowly and quietly opened as if of its own accord we precipitated ourselves into the landing place we both saw a large pale light as large as the human figure, but shapeless and unsubstantial, moved before us and ascended the stairs that led from the landing into the attics. I followed the light, and my servant followed me. It entered, to the right of the landing, a small garret, of which the door stood open. I entered in the same instant. The light then collapsed into a small globule, exceedingly brilliant and vivid, and rested a moment on the bed in the corner, quivered, and vanished." Welcome to another edition of Horror 101. The preceding excerpt was from one of tonight's selections, The House and the Brain, by Sir Edward bulwer Lytton. I, once again, am Kevin Lucia, welcoming you here to another installment. And we're continuing on in our examination of the house motif in the history of the horror genre. Just in brief review of last episode... Last time, we looked at three different kinds of houses. We looked at the Cursed House, and we examined the House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne. We looked at the Dying House, and we looked at the Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. We looked at a classic haunted house story, The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. And we looked at a natural gothic installment, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. This month's installment, we'll look at several different types of haunted house stories, First, we'll be looking at The Haunted House Story, a collection edited by Charles Dickens, which I had come across very much by accident. We will then look at The House of the Brain. We will also look at a short tale called The Alchemist by H.P. Lovecraft. And our natural gothic selection, this installment, is going to be Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Before I dive into that, I wanted to offer an amendum to our plans for this program, which I imagine will be happening quite a bit, because I'm exploring these works right along all with the rest of you as you're hearing them. So I'm finding different areas that I want to focus on as I continue. And ironically enough, in reading The House and the Brain, I was prompted to remember a motif that I had left out. If you'll remember, um, I had uh, set out to examine the house the ghost, the beast, and the weird. But I kind of also left out the occult detective because that's really what we have in the house of the brain and we talk about that a little bit later is that scientific paranormal investigator who's consumed with the occult and seeks it out and tries to examine it or debunk it or investigate it. Um, and there's a whole category that features that motif. So I wanted to, to know that I'm going to add that to my schedule. And I've also decided that when I examine certain authors, because after I get through looking at the different motifs, I'm also going to touch down on particular authors and how their work has impacted the genre. I've decided that even though we tend to categorize him as a science fiction author, I'm going to do an examination of the works of H.G. Wells. Because when you really think about him, when you think of the War of the Worlds, there is certainly an element of cosmic horror there. Uh, when you think of the Invisible Man and in the island of Dr. Moreau, uh, you're thinking of that penetration again into unlawful knowledge, or that knowledge that man should not have. Uh, when you think of the Time Machine, it's a very horrific future in a very subtle way. that kind of creeps upon you, especially if you're reading it for the first time, with the Eloi and the Morlocks So I believe those works are are worthy of examination within the horror genre because, again, I think I've said this already, and I'm not the only one who said this. Other people, far more intelligent than I have, have said this. Science fiction is always going to have that strain of horror in it. All literature has a strain of horror in it. But science fiction especially is always going to have that strain of horror in it because if we're encountering aliens, whether or not it's a straight-up or pastiche Just that alienness, that otherness, that non-human aspect provides a thread of horror. Uh, If it's a science fiction tale, again, exploring advances in technology or advances in science, we're once again treading ground in that unlawful knowledge or that knowledge that man should not possess. So um, we're definitely going to take some time out and examine H.G. Wells as we continue. So first up tonight is a haunted house story by Charles Dickens. Now, I have to admit, I came across this entirely by accident in my search for works that I wanted to consider when I looked at the haunted house motif, Um, and it's actually a very interesting collection. And that's another thing. When you really start examining the horror genre or all literature, it's funny how today—and there's, there's hyperbole everywhere—but it's funny today how publishers or small press publishers or large pub- publishers or writers proclaim this brand-new anthology that's a brand-new idea that's never done before. And then when you really start searching out the roots of literature, you realize, no— This is not true. This has been done before. So it was very interesting to find this. What it essentially is, it's a linked collection of short stories taking place in a haunted house. Um, The editor is Charles Dickens. It originally appeared, I believe, in installments. It was actually a Christmas story. So that's another thing that's very interesting about this, is that we have, perhaps for the first time... And I say perhaps because, again, I'm reading all this along with you. You know, there's no way that I can say definitively this. That would take so much research. That could be a life. This could be a life's work. It really could be. Um, but, uh, it was a very mainstream story. It was ghost story for entertainment, I guess. If you, if we wanted to categorize Haunted House Story by Charles Dickens, is we see perhaps for one of the first times, anyway. The ghost story presented to us as merely entertainment, not as an an attempt to scare or an attempt to shock or frighten. Not unironically, it's not mentioned anywhere it's in Lovecraft's treatise on horror, supernatural horror and literature, because really, even though a haunted house story is a haunted house story with ghosts, it's not necessarily a horror story. But I thought it was worthy of mentioning simply because it was a very interesting instruction. Essentially, Charles Dickens frames the story that a group of friends have heard of a haunted house, and they have all decided to spend the night in the house. But they have also chosen to refrain from sharing their experiences with each other until an aforementioned time when they would, after spending time in the house, in all of the rooms, they would get together and share their experiences in this haunted house. And as it turns out, each short story in this collection is a different member of these group of friends sharing uh, their experiences with the ghosts. I'm not going to mention most of the other authors because, uh, again, the, the only author really of note in this collection is. Charles Dickens. And quite frankly, the best stories in this collection are written by Charles Dickens. But what's interesting also about this collection is the ghosts did not die in this house, Uh, which again, this is more of a a fun story about ghosts telling their lives, not so much an examination of how they haunt a house and the pain and misery they died in. Um, In this story, the ghosts appear to every one of the The uh, members of this party, they're staying in the house, and they end up sharing their life story. So again, in this way, the ghost stories become a vehicle for telling these little vignettes about these folks' life story, not about how they died. So it's interesting that in the haunted house story, these ghost stories are very much about the ghosts' lives as humans, and not about how they died, and not about how they've come to haunt this place. So it's an interesting collection. And again, I say, uh, in many ways... Very mainstream. I will admit the quality is a little uneven. Some of the stories, I think the best stories are written by Charles Dickens himself. But um, this is uh, also a collection that I discovered free online for your Nook or a variety of sources. And I'll post the link to our Facebook group, which once again, if you haven't joined us yet, we do have a group on Facebook called Horror 101 Explorations in the Roots of the Horror Genre. Is the title of the Facebook group. And I will post that to the Facebook group at a later date. So yeah, The Haunted House Story by Charles Dickens. Our second work of this installment, probably the one I'm going to spend the most time talking about because I found it simply the most intriguing, is The House in the Brain by Sir Edward bulwer Lytton. Uh, who, ironically, in my research, uh, little things that you don't realize, he is the one who coined for us, it was a dark and stormy night. So I'm sure Charles Schultz and Snoopy thank Sir Edward bulwer Lytton for providing that line. The House in the Brain offers us a classic setup. We have a house that's filled with strange phenomena for years. The landlord can't get anybody to uh, stay there. And it's cursed. Cursed. And they're assuming haunted by the former inhabitants. We don't know who they are. All this landlord is uh, concerned with is, I can't rent it out to anybody because nobody will stay there. Eventually... The caretaker lady who's watching over it is found dead and now our landlord is stuck with a house that so he can't get anybody to buy, he can't get anybody to stay in. Enter our intrepid, unnamed narrator, which again, this book is the book that has prompted me to add the occult detective to our examination because our narrator is a scientific, rational man who is in many ways, I won't say obsessed But he's very interested in the occult, very interested in the supernatural. And the very first thing he thinks when he hears about a haunted house, a friend says to him, Oh, I found a haunted house in London. And the narrator's like, Really? Great. I want to stay there. So he goes and talks to the landlord and talks about the occult, talks about what may be happening there. And he decides that he and his servant are going to spend the night in this house intentionally to investigate the phenomena. So we have a, a 18th century ghost hunters, if you will. He and his servant end up spending the night there, and indeed, uh, as you saw part of the excerpt I read at the beginning of this podcast, they experience ghostly phenomena doors opening and closing, visual phenomena, feelings of creeping, horror and dread, uh, haunting you from room to room. One room in particular, seems very tainted with a sense of malignant evil. At some point in the night, the servant loses it and runs out in terror. And also at one point, our narrator brings a faithful dog, of course, because all animals can sense the paranormal. And unfortunately, in one incident, our narrator's dog is killed Interestingly enough, our narrator goes back to talk to the lander the next day, and he's willing to concede that there is something supernatural happening in the house, but he's not willing to concede that it is a haunting. Because of his beliefs in the occult and the, uh, the ability of humans to learn forbidden knowledge and to gain access to powers and abilities through the power of their mind and their psyche and their brain, he believes that supernatural phenomena can still have a human root, a human source. And he really, especially when he's thinking of the fact that it looks like his dog was killed because it was strangled, he begins to believe that even though there's all this supernatural phenomena that they have experienced, he believes there's a human agent. An interesting side note here would be to reflect on one of my earlier podcasts and also the work of Noel Carroll from The Philosophy of Horror in how a lot of the original ghost stories we could theorize that they gained popularity in the early Gothic novels as kind of a knee-jerk reaction to the advent of the Enlightenment and reason, and we can study everything. And it's interesting that in this ghost story, our main character is still maintaining that no, there are no ghosts here. This is supernatural, it is occultic, but it's still something that I can quantify and study, which he ends up doing, of course. He ends up going back to the house the next day, uh, or several days after, to pursue a further investigation. And in their investigations in the house during the day, they end up discovering a secret room which again, how many times have we seen this played out through the generations and stories and movies? He finds a secret room full of uh, occultic materials, books, powders, potions, symbols, sigils, and it becomes apparent that this room is kind of like a supernatural occultic workshop in a drawer. He finds a portrait of a man he recognizes, a man of uh, occultic renown, a famed investigator into the occult. Then uh, somebody else who's with him also recognizes the face, but he recognizes this as somebody else who lived in India and, and also wanted by the law for his occult practices. And through their investigations, they suddenly realize, or they discover that this portrait of this man they all recognize is far too old to be the man they know of only 15 years ago. So now, here is our investigator's culprit. Here is the source of the supernatural power, who it appears to be kind of a Melmoth the Wanderer figure, some sort of sorcerer or or a wizard or something of that nature, uh, a man of the occult, an Albertus Magnus, if you will, who has learned how to obtain, at the very least, longevity of life, and for some reason has been haunting this house, making sure that no one who ever lives here will ever dwell in peace. The next day, our narrator notices someone observing the house from a distance who looks a lot like the guy in the picture. By the time he gets there, the guy's gone, Our narrator ends up tracking this man down at a local diner bar, and indeed, this is our figure, our sorcerer, who long ago was an original possessor of this house, and he was wronged in a love affair, and he is now determined to haunt this house on occasion with his spells and magics to make sure that no one could ever live a peaceful life in this house. And it's interesting because this is where our story transitions to being about the house, to being about this occult detective and this man who's searching for this knowledge, because he ends up having this interview with this immortal figure at the end of the story, and he says to him, our narrator, look, I studied the occult, I studied under people, I have a right to know what you know. And then it even mentions that that he utters a passcode that our immortal figure immediately recognizes, which allows him access to his knowledge. And He sits there and and shares his forbidden knowledge with him. So I thought that was interesting with a little passcode there, because how many times have we heard stories about belonging to a secret fraternity or a secret um, group of people? So that was, that was very interesting to me. And the house in the brain ends with our narrator learning all this information from the immortal figure. And then after the interview is concluded, uh, the immortal figure mesmerizes the narrator and slips off into the unknown to continue his career doing whatever it is he does. So I found it very interesting to find this installment uh, in the haunted house genre to be also kind of an introduction of this occultic investigator whose uh, sole purpose is to seek out these experiences and try to study them and quantify them. And an interesting side note to this story is a short story by H.P. Lovecraft called The Alchemist, uh, because I'm beginning my studies on H.P. Lovecraft now to eventually deliver a podcast, or probably it'll take several podcasts to talk about Lovecraft's inheritance and what he gave the horror genre. But I came across a small little story of his called The Alchemist, which is, interestingly enough, written at the turn of the century, uh, very similar to both The House of the Seven Gables and The House of the Brain, in that we have a first-person narrator talking about uh, his family's curse, in that uh, in ages past, they had somehow wronged a learned man, a sorcerer, who then placed a curse on his household, so that every generation, of uh, the male, of the family, when they reach a certain age, would die a horrible death. And this does come to pass. Every generation in this family, when a male reaches a certain age, they die. So in that case, it's very much like the House of the Seven Gables. However, our narrator, in the course of the story, discovers that it's not a supernatural curse that is killing them at this age every year, but the alchemist, the original source for her, cursed them, had discovered how to achieve immortality, and has been hiding in the bowels of the house this entire time, and at the appointed time, every generation sneaks out and finds a way to kill or murder the person. So completing the curse, again, very similar to the house in the brain, supernatural in that they have gained access to all these powers, but not ghostly supernatural, not a curse that floats around and strikes every couple of years, but the actual person who's been hiding under the house. So I thought that was a very interesting uh, a little amendment to that story. And finally tonight, our natural gothic installment is Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. And again, very briefly, uh, the reason why I've kind of been keeping the track as long as we develop the horror genre on the natural gothic is because, as I said before, it's interesting how the genres had a common root and then split into, uh, again, the, the very overly genre tales, maybe featuring occultic elements and hauntings and ghosts and demons. And they also pursue another track, pursuing perhaps more literary sensibilities uh, last time we talked about jane eyre by charlotte bronte this time we're going to look at wuthering heights by emily bronte and uh, ironically enough in uh, lovecraft's essay on supernatural horror he accords wuthering heights a lot of admiration in his place in the horror genre because uh, again like the seven gables the supernatural touch here is light it 's never really come out and said it's implied, but our main hero, villain, whatever you want to call him Heathcliff, is discovered as an orphan in the moors, which again the moors just has a very you know supernatural trappings out there in the misty fog and the wet and the damp and the unexplored regions. But as an orphan, he's discovered there by the owner of Wuthering Heights. He's a child with no language. He's a child with no background, no history. And from the moment he enters the story, he brings nothing but misery to everyone around him. Not always necessarily because he intends to, but simply because his presence seems to require it. And he grows and matures into a man who is almost inhuman in his, not only his intentional cruelty, but he simply does not seem to recognize any human sense of sympathy or empathy throughout the story it's ironic the father who adopted him dies very soon after he comes to live with them he ends up tormenting his brother all the way to his grave uh, as an adult and everyone he touches he ruins their lives and there are mild elements of hauntings here it's a frame narrative told by a Mr. Lockwood, who when Heathcliff is an adult, Mr. Lockwood comes to stay at Wuthering Heights, and very early in the story when he has to spend the night at Wuthering Heights, Mr. Lockwood references that he believes he hears a ghostly voice out of a window of a, of a young female begging to be let in. And of course we assume that's it's Catherine who, uh, I think the relationship between Catholic and Heathcliff is just toxic. Um, they're a, the couple that can never be together, yet they can never be apart, and they live Literally haunt each other in life, and then after she passes away, there's intimations that she haunts Heathcliff. Heathcliff haunts her grave, and then at the end of Wuthering Heights, uh, for several days, Heathcliff, as, he, as an adult, Heathcliff claims there's a change coming. He claims of strange visitations and seeing Catherine until he stops eating. So we discover him in his room strangely dead, but not sure how he dies. And then he's ended up laid to rest next to Catherine, and there are stories afterward that he and Catherine can be seen walking the moors, even to this day, together in death as they were in life. So again, we see here what has come to be recognized as uh, one of the hallmarks, one of the masterpieces of literature, branching off from the uh, genre trappings of, say, the house and the brain but still invoking that sense of dread, maybe subtly, even if only you're reading through the book and you're wondering, is Heathcliff even human? What's, what's wrong with him? How can he not understand these basic elements of human compassion and empathy? Uh, and the, they're nothing but tormented people living tormented lives. And Lovecraft actually called it a tale of life of human passions in agony and conflict. So it's definitely deserving of mention in our exploration of the horror genre in all of its forms. And that concludes this month's installment of Horror 101. Uh, I hope it was an enjoyable podcast. Uh, Next time, we're looking to examine The House on the Borderlands by William Hope Hodgson, The Rats in the Walls, again, another tale by Lovecraft, Uncle Silas by Lefenu, and If I Have Time, I think our final look at the natural gothic story, which we're going to let go of that as we continue, our final look will be Bleak House by Charles Dickens, either next time or the time after that. Again, I, I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. If you ever, ever have any questions or comments, feel free to drop me a line, or to especially join our Facebook group, Studying Horror, Horror 101 Explorations of the Roots of the Horror Genre, Once again, this is Kevin Lusha. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.
1: Ah, you raise an interesting specter, Kevin. Next month, you will dissect one of my favorite stories from the olden days of horror— William Hope Hodgson's House on the Borderland. I'm looking forward to that. Say, you think you can do this job? You got the moxie, you got the stuff to host the telling of tales on the toughest patch of dirt the District of Wonders can throw at you? You like adventure and daring do? Do you perform impossible feats where the odds are against you and the situation is grim? Sound like fun to you? If that's your meat and potatoes, have I got a suggestion for you, friends. Dave Robson, the tailmaster over at Protecting Project Pulp, is going off to seek other adventures in far-flung realms, you see. His size 13s need to be filled and fast, see? There's a lot a host can do in that show. Well, at the heart of it, the show is the hosts to make a lot of, or, well, it's up to the person, you see? So, you think you've got what it takes? <laughs> yeah? Well, then drop a dime at starshipsofa at com. Ask for Tony. Okay? The offer's on the table till January 23. After that, <laughs> in someone else's pocket okay okay well that's enough of that harry shannon is a phenomenal well i want to say writer and he is that but he's a lot more he's been an actor singer an emmy-nominated songwriter a recording artist in europe a music publisher Vice President at Carolco Pictures, Terminator 2, Total Recall, Rambo, et al. He's worked as a freelance music supervisor on films such as Basic Instinct and Universal Soldier. He holds an M.A. in psychology and currently counsels in private practice. Harry has won the Tombstone, the Black Quill, and has been nominated for the Stoker. And although Harry's primarily a novelist... He sold stories to genre magazines such as Cemetery Dance, Horror Garage, City Slab, Crime Spree, and Gothic.net. He contributed a 25,000-word mystery horror novella to Cemetery Dance's limited edition collection, Brimstone Turnpike. And he's had shorter fiction in genre anthologies like Dead West, Dead Set, and In Delirium too. Harry was also in the World War II-themed anthology with me, A Dark and Deadly Valley. And, of course, I recommend that heartily. I could go on and on, and usually do, but tonight I won't because I want you to get into this story. And let me mention, this is a disturbing tale. So, the squeamish among you might want to hide your ears or go squeam in the corner. Here is Harry Shannon's violent delights.
3: Child, what you fear will come to get you in the night. and That's right. Jack had read that somewhere. Perhaps in some piece of macabre modern fiction. Maybe a horror tale. The kind of thing scathingly condemned in stuffy classrooms by pale professors, unpublished authors all, who secretly felt superior to Ambrose Bierce and Poe, never mind Stephen King. Or... Maybe Jack had written it himself under some mass market pen name a dozen years ago. His mind was a junkyard these days. A thought. I am afraid of dying. The flesh twitched, felt pain. The comfort of oblivion was lifted. Jack Kincaid smelled shit and knew it was his own. He cringed. A substantial part of his cheek seemed to be missing or perhaps peeled back.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
3: He could taste blood. His bare teeth were pressing against something cold and dusty. Jack tried to lick his teeth, but his tongue felt sticky and thick. It would not obey. His eyes were wide open, a fact which surprised him because he saw nothing but darkness and what appeared to be a piece of splintered plywood with tools hanging on it a rusty hammer, a screwdriver, some pliers, and several small wrenches. Where the fuck am I? What's going on? He could not move his head. I'm hurt. Something is horribly wrong. There was no pain, not at first just a burgeoning fist of icy fingers that slowly unclenched in his abdomen. Jack tried to move his legs, but nothing changed. He felt paralyzed. Suddenly, Jack wondered if his penis was also dead, or even missing in action. The very idea made him sick to his stomach. What happened to me? Jack Kincaid remembered. He'd been pounding on the door to the liquor store. It's not even two o'clock yet, you lazy asshole. "'glaring through the window in thirsty frustration. "'But the bored old man closed the blinds anyway "'and locked up for the night. "'Jack kicked the steel security door as hard as he could. "'The action made a booming sound, "'not unlike the hovering thunder. "'The door didn't budge, but now his wet toes hurt. "'He gathered his clothing around him. "'He cursed God and then cringed like a superstitious schoolboy "'when the heavy rainfall intensified.' There was nothing to be done. Nowhere to go. There came a clatter like nails pouring onto sheet metal as buckets of hail slammed down onto the awning. The racket was deafening. Jack stood in the doorway and sighed. Whatever happened to Jack Kincaid, once published author of the dark paperback fiction? Inquiring minds want to know! He fished through his empty pockets, feeling desperate found a cool, and lit it up. The bitter smoke scorched his throat. The welcome kiss of nicotine fed his craving. He looked east and west, but at 2 a.m., Sherman Way, now two feet deep in filthy rainwater, was devoid of traffic. He finished the cigarette and muttered, Lazy Asshole, under his breath. Jack Kincaid stepped out onto the sidewalk. He was immediately soaked to the skin again. He hunched his shoulders forward and started walking. He had parked near a dumpster behind the Safeway Market, thinking their liquor department would remain open, but he'd been wrong. Now he had nearly four long blocks to walk. Jack had stashed a bottle of rot gut wine in the motel room for just such an emergency, and now he was going to need it. I'm toast. Done. I'll never finish another book. He looked up and down the boulevard and started into the crosswalk. I'm a fucking bum. A car? Jack Kincaid blinked and wiped water from his eyes. Twin headlights were coming, right down the middle of Sherman Way, as if the driver couldn't make out the dotted dividing line because of the rain. Maybe a dark ragtop Mustang? The light turned red. Jack waved to the driver and continued on through the crosswalk, mumbling obscenities and pondering the cruel vagarities of life. No! The world slowed down, in that strange way it does when the body is afraid and the glands pump waves of adrenaline. Jack cried out. Wait! He managed to turn his back partway to the hood and throw up an arm to defend his face just as the brakes squealed and the Mustang hit him around waist level. Boom! Jack actually heard the bones in his hip crack. His nerves shrieked in agony, and then everything went white and silent. He sailed through the air. Somehow, the Ford managed to knock him forward and up as the car slowed. But the laws of physics decreed a second collision. As he came down, he met the hood again. His spine crashed into the windshield, and one of his legs extended through the broken safety glass. His lower back and legs went completely numb. A spray of sharp glass sandpapered his skin. Nerves shrieked as facial tissue peeled away like a slice of ripe tomato. He passed out. And then woke up here, alone, looking at a bunch of tools turned orange with rust. Feeling numb and sleepy and in pain and like he was about to slip back into unconsciousness. "'Jesus, no! I don't want to die!' A sense of deep, immutable dread consumed Jack at the very thought of death. His heart stuttered. He shook off much of the physiological shock. His mind fed him an absurd tidbit. Woody Allen had once stated, "'I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens.'" Jack wrote noir fiction and taught droll classes in existentialism, had often wittily discussed death anxiety with students, but never truly felt that terror until now. He forced himself to focus. He counted the wrenches just to stay awake. I'm in a shed of some kind, or perhaps somebody's garage. What am I lying on? He struggled to move. Agony lanced through his hips. He scratched with his fingernails and tapped. Some kind of metal. Oh, sweet Jesus! I'm still laying on the hood of the car that hit me! Jack Kincaid had been smashed enough times to know about driving in a blackout. He wondered if some drunk had hit him, then driven home and parked in his own garage. Would the man be up soon? respond to a vague memory, and come out to check for damage to the vehicle? How long had he been here? Could it already be close to morning? Would someone find him in time? I can't die. I have a fucking novel to finish. I haven't talked to my daughter in months, and I owe my son that money I took from his college fund to cover my day trading losses. Oh, fuck. I can't die now. Not like this. Please. With considerable effort, he managed to move his head a bit and take in more of his surroundings. The garage was dark, and he was indeed lying sideways on the hood of the car, halfway through the windshield, his lower body in the passenger seat, upper on the hood. A bit of light leaked through a vent, but it could have been anything. Street lamp, porch light, or the glint of early dawn. Two small concrete steps led up to a thick, unpainted wooden door that led into the house. Jack ordered his hand to make a fist and failed. Tried again. The third time was the charm. He swallowed blood and tried to pound on the hood. His first attempt was too weak and his flesh just slid along the surface without making a sound. A twinge of pain shot down his back and caused a lumbar spasm. Agony made his teeth clench. His torn cheek flared white-hot in response. He tried again, and this time succeeded in making some noise. A dull thud echoed through the garage. He pounded a few more times, and then gave up. The effort exhausted Jack, and he closed his eyes. Help me! Help me! Don't let me die like this! I'm afraid! His heart fibrillated with excitement. Something had moved on the other side of the unpainted door. He heard some floorboards squeak. Jack managed one more thump, and then tiny white dots sprinkled themselves over reality. He was close to passing out again. Jack was terrified he'd never wake up. The floorboards creaked again, and then he heard some footsteps, moving down a hallway, probably, and heading for the garage. Someone was coming. He fixed his eyes on the door, and it seemed to enlarge in his vision, as if viewed through binoculars. Thank you, God. Thank you. The footsteps paused on the other side of the door. After a long moment, the door opened and a light came on. The naked bulb above him turned the garage a peculiar yellow. Jack had to close his eyes again. He forced himself to croak out some words. Thank you, God. Don't make so much noise. What? Jack opened his eyes and squinted. A young woman stood in the doorway. She was anorexic thin, pretty in her own way, with large blue eyes and long blonde hair tied up in a ponytail. She wore a tank top and torn blue jean shorts and held a thick quart bottle of clear liquor in one dainty hand. Her voice was thin and petulant. She had a dark bruise below her right eye. Help me, Jack whispered. Please help me. The pretty girl sat down on the steps and hugged her bony knees. "'I'd really like to,' she said. "'But I can't risk it. I'd be getting into trouble.' "'Her boyfriend hit me, and she's terrified of him,' Jack thought miserably. "'He beats her. She won't call the cops.' "'Call 911,' he mumbled. "'Get me an ambulance. Please.' I can't, she said. Look, I know this sucks, but I have to consider my own position here, you know? What? The girl was chewing gum. She blew a bubble that immediately popped and forced her to peel it away from her face. Sorry. Ever since I quit smoking, I have to chew gum to stay thin. I need to do something with my mouth, you know? She took a sip of her liquor. He heard the contents sloshing. Jack lay mute, pleading with his eyes. The girl peered at him, adopted a teenaged, "ew" kind of expression, and frowned. You look really bad, she said. She sniffed. You stink, too. Improbably, Jack felt embarrassed by the stink of his own urine and excrement. He licked his lips and managed sorry no don't be i'm sorry huh i'm like so sorry i hit you please call for help i can't she said she seemed genuinely upset like i said you have to understand my position Jack raised his brows in a question. The effort hurt his ravaged cheek. The drying blood was stickier now and kept him halfway attached to the hood. A part of him still waited to hear about the abusive boyfriend, hoped he could convince her to call 911 and perhaps take her to a safe house. "'My name's Honey,' she said. She smiled winningly. "'And I'm an actress, see? And I just got a part in this comedy pilot.' It's shooting tomorrow, as a matter of fact. The grin grew wider. This'll get me into the Screen Actors Guild. I'm pretty excited. Jack lay still. He struggled to absorb her statement and finally croaked. I... I don't understand. She blushed Scarlet. I was really fucked up last night, she said. I hardly ever mix things, you know, but I had a lewd and some shots of tequila and then tried to drive home. I feel like such an asshole. I barely remember hitting you. Isn't that weird? You took out the right side of my windshield and I even bumped my head, but somehow I drove on home anyway. So here we are. Help me, Jack murmured. Call an ambulance. She shrugged. I wish I could. Do something. Oh, I want to. Really, I do. But if the news gets out, I'd like totally lose this job and be back where I started from. Listen, you have to understand how hard it is to make it as an actor in this town. Jack stared at her, he was stunned. What you fear will come get you in the night, that's right. He felt a solitary drop of blood slip down his right nostril and exit towards the hood. Something thickened in his chest, and he coughed up thumbtacks of pain. More blood. Fuck, I'm not going to make it. Why won't you help me? (laughs) Rehab, she said. Jack was fading in and out now, but she took his silence for an encouragement to continue. "'I've always been afraid of rehab,' she continued chattily. "'I know lots of big stars go there and everything, but I just can't face life sober. That just terrifies the shit out of me, you know? Besides, a hit-and-run thing on my record, and I'm, like, totally fucked. So then I have to go to some low-budget rehab to avoid jail, and then when I finally get out, I have no career on top of that?' No way. Please. Use her name. Maybe it will make her feel more like you are a human being. Please, honey. It hurts. She nodded vigorously. Oh, I can believe that, man. But the shock should settle in pretty soon, and then it won't be so bad. I just looked up shock on my computer, and frankly, it's totally amazing that you're awake at all. This is murder, Jack whispered. You know that, don't you? Honey blinked. Her face contracted, and she sighed dramatically. (sighs) Don't threaten me, she said. I was just about to offer you some water and a couple of Vicodins to take the edge off, okay? So you'd better fucking be nice. I'm in hell, Jack thought suddenly. I've died... And this is hell. I will spend the rest of eternity lying in my own shit, talking to this narcissistic nutcase about personal responsibility, just because I fucked up during my time on Earth. I don't want to die, honey. Not now. Not like this. Ugh, I totally know what you mean, she said. She sipped some liquor. Dying scares the shit out of me, too. She remembered his condition and blinked. Sorry. No offense. Jack suddenly realized that his left hand was partly on the dash. He could feel plastic beneath those bloody fingers. He wondered if he could reach the horn and attract attention. He shifted his arm and groaned silently, got an immediate jolt of pain along the tendons. His hand touched the steering wheel, Jack felt a glimmer of hope. He forced himself to speak again. Get me some water, he croaked. Honey scowled. Not if you're not going to ask nicely. I don't believe this bitch. Please. She smiled brightly. Okay, then. Want to take a few Vicodin? It'll make all of this a lot easier on the both of us. Sure, Jack whispered, forced out. Thank you. Honey put her quart of booze down on the steps and got to her feet. She trotted back into the house, but left the door partway open. Jack took a deep breath and steeled himself. He grabbed the steering wheel and hauled his upper body to the left. He bit down and bloodied his tongue to hold back a wail of pure agony. The world tilted and rocked. After a long moment, he reached down again. The car was a relic of the Cold War. The horn was easy to find. He pressed it. The racket was loud enough to hurt his ears. Morse code, right? He tried for SOS. Three longs and three shorts. A deep breath. A ragged scream. Help me! Please help me! The noise was thrilling, exciting, sure to bring help. Jack ignored the desperate complaints of his battered muscles, ribs, bones, and nerve endings. He honked, and he screamed, and he honked. She came through the door furious, with her pearly teeth bared and her eyes wide. You fucking bum! Jack honked and screamed. Honey grabbed a hammer from the rack. She leaned over the hood and slammed it down on his arm. Jack gagged. He jerked his hand away from the horn so violently it further broke one of his ribs. He felt something puncture his lung, and his breathing became a watery rasp. Honey raised the hammer over his head. She concentrated, the tip of her pretty little tongue protruding from her mouth, as if trying to guess how to inflict damage that wouldn't spell homicide. Don't! Jack whined. He heard the liquid death rattle in his own voice. Fear froze him solid. I'm never going to be able to tell my children that I'm sorry. Never going to write that novel. Never going to repay those debts. Honey cocked her head like a parrot. Her ponytail danced. She lowered the hammer and bent over to look deeply into his reddened eyes. For a horrible moment, Jack thought she was going to give him a kiss. Oh, you poor baby, she said tenderly. It's almost over, isn't it? Yes, he said. I think so. Well, that's good, isn't it? Honey, they will find me, Jack whispered. She shook her pretty head. Not here. My boyfriend's a dealer, you know. He's had problems to dispose of before. When he gets back from Vegas, we'll take you out to the dump like in an old carpet or something, okay? But... uh, Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. She is out of her fucking mind. Blood ran into Jack's left eye, and he wanted to wipe it away. He tried to move the hand she'd hammered. The pain was excruciating. Honey had broken the bone in his forearm. Suddenly Jack discovered a thick sliver of glass, square at the bottom but tapering to a point. He clenched his fist until he felt it under the palm of his hand. He stopped struggling. Can you move it? Honey asked sweetly. No, Jack said. I can't. Jack Kincaid hadn't been to Mass in 40 years, but he found himself praying. Oh, my God, I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee. Honey dropped the hammer. It bounced off the hood and clattered onto the garage floor. She yawned. "Uh, I'm going to bed, she said. Just let yourself go and totally get it over with. No offense, but it looks like you didn't have much to live for anyway, right? And you're young. You're going to be a star, Jack said. Honey searched his beaten face for sarcasm. Jack forced a nod. I can understand that, honey, he said. You're probably right. That's so cool, she said. Good night, then. Wait, can I have the pain pills? Honey considered. Finally, she shook her head and walked back to the steps. You know what? I really need them for myself to come down. I have to get some sleep. <clears throat> Please. It hurts, honey. Please. Please. Honey hesitated. All right, she said. I don't want you to think I'm, like, heartless or anything. You said you were thirsty. You can finish my tequila. Will that help? A harsh spasm rolled through him. For a moment, Jack thought it was over, but the hurt subsided.
2: I'm thirsty,
3: he whispered. Yes. Honey picked up the quart bottle. She approached, swinging her hips, bent over the hood and held it to his lips. Jack drank like an animal, ignoring the pain, until he felt that welcome heat of alcohol hit his stomach. He put away enough to quench his thirst, and dull his agony for a while. He closed his eyes. Honey patted his head. She sounded like a vet about to put down an old dog. Good night, sweet prince, she said, then added, That's Shakespeare. Violent delights, Jack whispered. It came out sounding like something else entirely, almost gibberish. He could feel himself slipping away, and his own fear lessened. Maybe dying isn't so bad after all. What? Honey said. He sensed her leaning closer, hoping to hear something profound. He whispered again, almost inaudibly. I can't hear you, Honey said, sadly. Jack used his remaining strength to seize the ponytail with his right hand and the shard of broken glass with his left. He cut her scalp, and blood spurted down her cheek. Honey screamed and struggled. Jack giggled. He felt something warm spurt from his nostrils. Honey was athletic and strong for her size. She struck his shoulder with the empty tequila bottle. Once. Twice. Jack held on and then cut her scalp again. She howled with pain and fear as some tender flesh peeled away. The bottle slipped from her hand and clattered to the floor. Jack grunted with pleasure. He slammed her head down on the hood. Dazed, Honey looked up as if about to beg for mercy. She saw that the remainder of Jack's cheek had been ripped completely away. His white skull and yellowed, grinning teeth were fully exposed. Honey, looking into his bulging, merciless eyes, shrieked like a young girl at a rock concert. "'Please don't hurt me anymore!' Jack giggled and heard that odd little rattle again, deep in his chest. He took a deep breath. With his bloody left hand, he began to peel away the skin of her pretty, pretty face, all while chanting aloud in a hoarse, croaked voice, Child, what you fear will come to get you in the night. That's right. He was halfway finished when he died honey lived. These violent delights have violent ends. Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, act two, verse nine.
1: few more words. Harry does noir, and his first effort in that regard was Memorial Day, a hardcover release from five-star first edition Mysteries in May of 2004. New Mystery Reader called it brilliant, wry, bittersweet, and altogether touching. Library Journal found it memorable, and Booklist said of amateur sleuth Mick Callahan, the central figure in the book, let's hope he's around for a long run. Well... McCallahan has been. When Harry scripted the comedic horror film, Dead and Gone, he also stayed around to supervise the music, sing the title song, and play a bit part. It's the sheriff, in case you needed to know. Then he wrote the novelization. We'll have more of Harry's work. And thanks again, Harry. Violent Delights was read for us tonight by Joe Sanmarco. Joe San Marco's been here before, you remember him. He did Sins of the Living, then picked up John Shirley's unforgettable Isolation Point and did Mark Rigney's Called on Account in Show 33. He is a former Angelino and now lives in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. What a change of pace! He's 25 and an aspiring voice actor, focusing on getting into animation or gaming. A proud geek, he calls himself, and has a soft spot in his heart for fantasy and science fiction. And thanks again, Joe. Your visit to the Nook tonight is... It's going to be about average length. Violent Delights took Joe a shade below 29 minutes to read to you. Horror 101 ran a smidge over 24 minutes. Welcomes, comments, information, business farewells, personal asides, and so forth... We'll top your visit this evening to a few minutes beyond an hour. As said, that's about average for our little gatherings here. And people say that that is about right for the show. There are tales out there in the darkness, though, that... uh, tales by nearly everyone, Lovecraft, uh, William Hope Hodgson, by the James Boys, and by contemporary authors galore, myself included, stories that are wonders of the chilly arts and the dark crafts that run far longer than an hour, three, four, five hours more. So here's the thought. I would like, from time to time, to prepare a a longer tale, and run it over several weeks, present it like a serial of old cliffhangers, if cliffhangers there be, and all. I know, I know. As a writer, I hate to break the spell that a tale is weaving. I hate to give the gathering horror a respite, but sometimes, sometimes it's just necessary. I proposed this idea on our Facebook page last week, and to date, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Some suggested that they didn't mind, but they'd collect the weeks and listen when all episodes have aired. I understand that. Some said yes, but would prefer that the serial ran to only two episodes. Well, there were other thoughts. Here's the point. What do you think? Hmm? Well, did you miss the Facebook discussion on that? If you did, you're probably not a Facebook friend of Tales to Terrify, am I right? Yes? Well, to date, Tales to Terrify approaches about 570 likers. We could always use more friends, of course. So, come aboard, join the discussion, let me know your thoughts, and thank you, all of you, for your suggestions for authors to feature during our meetings. And yes, 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 we'll have more of Marty Munt in 2013. We'll have more Hodgson, more Lovecraft, more King, I hope. Well, more, more, just more, more. So, that will do it for the evening, children. Week one of our second year. So, up and doing, bright and chipper, gather your coats and furs about you and be on your darkling homeward walks. Uh, be careful, by the way, of the streets, nearly empty as they are in this district of the District of Wonders, at this time of night. We have had accidents in the past, recent past, from now until the sun rises from the lake. <laughs> Those are the hours when exactly the wrong people are abroad on the streets, strapped into their too-fast killing machines. These are the hours when they are least likely to notice a bemused walker in the dark. So, children of the night, be careful, so you may arrive safely home to feed the creatures you keep and to crawl into bed And have your always pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by The District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders
0: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: And there are many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.